This past Tuesday night, um, my oldest daughter, Lilia, who's 11, had her last lacrosse game of her, her, of her inaugural season. She's, she just started lacrosse this year, and lacrosse is actually kind of a challenging sport to learn, and, and she's done well. And so this was her last game, and, and she was so excited about it. And her goal the whole season, her, the one thing she kept saying is, this season I want to score one goal. That was her thing. And it's hard to score in lacrosse. She's like, I want to score one goal. And so we get to the last game Tuesday night. She actually had a doubleheader. So she played the first game, and she didn't score a goal. And I had to drive her somewhere real quick to use the bathroom between the games because there was no bathrooms there. And in the car, she was lamenting, oh, I had a chance to score, and I really want to score a goal. And it meant so much to her. And so the second game starts, and she gets two assists, but she doesn't have a goal. And it's near the end of the game, and they put her out on defense. And in lacrosse, you can't score on defense because you, you're not allowed to even cross into the offensive zone when you're a defender. So when she's playing defense, she knows and I know she's not going to be able to score. And the time is going away, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Lily's, and I'm, I'm already prepping my dad talk. You know the dad talk. Lilia, you did your best. You had two assists. It's your first season. You got a lot of lacrosse. I'm already preparing what I'm going to say to her to kind of like encourage her. And right with like a minute to go, they shift her into the offensive position. And I know like this is literally her last chance of the season. And all of a sudden, the ball's on the ground, which is where it is most of the time in lacrosse, and uh, at least at that age. And then she, she gets the ground ball. And as she gets the ground ball, I have the sense to start recording her because I'm like, this is the moment. And she scoops up the ground ball, and she runs towards the goal, and she does this little stutter step that I might have taught her that weekend. And, uh, and the, the defender goes past her, and she steps to the right where she's right in front of the goal. And just like she's done it 100 times, she fires a shot right over the goalie's shoulder into the back of the net. The last possession of her last game of her first year. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Afterwards, I watched it back on video, and I was both really excited that I captured it almost perfectly, but also sort of startled by how loud I was. <laughs> like, I yelled. I didn't even realize how loud I yelled. I, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, and then I, but you know, you're really excited, and you don't even, I ended it like, I ended it with an S, so it was really, it was like, yeah, like, that's what I, that's what I yelled, and then a woohoo, and then like three seconds later, another, yeah, Lilia. And it was just this like visual, uh, audible reminder to me of how much I love sports. I mean, I, I love sports. You know, I think of what I love most in my life. Of course, I love Jesus. I love my family. I love my friends in this church body, then food. And then right after, right after food is sports. And one of the things I love about sports is I love the rivalries in sports. I love the teams that hate each other and the teams that are desperate to beat each other. And I was thinking, what are the greatest rivalries in sports? And in, in the NBA, you have to go back sometime because the players are all changing teams so fast now. But back in the day, it was the Lakers and the Celtics. That was the great rivalry or the Bulls and the Pistons. And in, in college basketball, locally, it's Syracuse and Georgetown, or at least it was. Now it's kind of becoming Syracuse and Duke. In college football, there's Ohio State and Michigan and Auburn and Alabama. And then in the NFL, there's the New England Patriots and everyone else, right? The New England Patriots and everyone who has a soul. And then, uh, and then in baseball, I think it's the greatest rivalry in all of sports. I got a picture of a moment from this rivalry. It's the Yankees and the Red Sox, the greatest rivalry in sports. You know, and, and I'm obviously, if you come to this church, you know that I'm a Yankee fan. And so when people say, who do you root for? I say, I root for two teams. I root for the Yankees and whoever's playing Boston that day. That's who I root for. That's what it means to really be in a rivalry. Now, when you read the Minor Prophets, 
like we've been doing for the last few weeks, and you study this time in Israel's history, it would be easy to assume that Israel's greatest rivals were Assyria and Babylon. And the reason why is because in in the 8th century BC, Israel is invaded and conquered and dragged into exile by Assyria. And then about 140 years later, Babylon invades Judah, conquers them, and drags them into exile. But you know, when you look closely at this time in the history of Israel, their greatest rival was not Assyria. Their greatest rival was not Babylon. Their greatest rival was a small nation to their southeast named Edom. Why was Edom their greatest rival? Well, there's three reasons. First, they had a very compelling backstory. In Genesis chapter 25, we're introduced to two brothers, Jacob and Esau. These two brothers are twins, and they're born moments apart, and from the moment they're born, they fight with each other. And the rest of their lives is marked by fighting. And in fact, it escalates. You know, you, maybe you think you didn't get along with your siblings. It escalates to the point where Jacob has to flee because Esau plans to kill him once dad is buried and gone. So Jacob takes off. And this feud never goes away. And Jacob's people become Israel. In fact, Jacob's name becomes Israel. And Edom's people become or Esau's people become Edom. In fact, sometimes in the prophets, you'll see Edom referred to as Esau, and you'll see Judah and Israel referred to as Jacob. And so you have this this brother rival that has extended many, many years all the way now to where it's Israel, Judah, and Edom. Also, Edom was next-door neighbors, which made the rivalry even worse. They are geographical rivals. They lived right next to Judah on the southeast, and there was no natural borders between them. But the other reason why Edom was their greatest rival was that Edom and Israel had a painful history. I just want to give you a snapshot. First off, Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through the territory on their way to the promised land. They would not let them go through. Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings of Israel, they all had problems with Edom. Saul and David battled against them. Now David actually defeated them, and in 1040 BC, David made them his subjects. But 200 years later, Edom fought back and regained their independence against Judah, the tribes of Judah at that time. King Amaziah of Judah led a brutal campaign against Edom where he killed 10,000 men in battle and another 10,000 by forcing them off a cliff. Amos, we studied Amos last week, Amos condemns the Philistines for selling Jewish captives to who? To the Edomites. And and he condemns Edom for their violence against Judah. And Edom raided Judah and took captives during the reign of Ahaz. So Edom and Judah, Edom and Israel, uh, they have this rivalry. And of course, Israel, remember, is the ten northern tribes, and Judah are the two southern tribes. And Edom's rivalry is most intense with Judah, because that's who they're closest to. But despite all of that, when Babylon was on the verge of attacking Judah, guess what Judah still expected? They actually expected Edom to help them out. You know, because they're brothers, they're distant relatives. You, you know, if you grow up with siblings, you know how this works within a family. Like, siblings beat each other up, but if somebody outside of the family starts to beat up your brother, what do you do? If you normally, in a healthy situation, you stand up for your brother, right? In fact, you might hear yourself saying something like this, no one beats up my brother but me, right? And that's kind of what Judah expected. They thought, well, Edom, yes, they've been a, we've, we've not seen eye to eye. They had been allies at time in the past. They had been enemies at times in the past. But surely against Babylon... Edom is going to step up and help us out. And actually, there's evidence that there were envoys from Edom that came in 593 B.C., and they traveled to Jerusalem just to discuss plans about how can we work together to defeat Babylon. But ultimately, what happened? Edom allied with Babylon. And in Obadiah, we see what Edom did to Judah, that they stood back 
when Babylon invaded, they didn't come to Judah's defense. Not just did they stand back, but they gloated and they rejoiced and they spoke arrogantly about what was happening to Judah. They're like, ha, 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 look what's happening to you. And then after they were being taken captive, they plundered the land. They, they seized their wealth. They even killed people from Judah who were trying to escape. And then they captured people who had escaped and they handed them over to the Babylonians. This is what Edom did. And this is why we have the book of Obadiah, because of the nation of Edom. Obadiah is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. I know what you're thinking. Hopefully it's also the shortest sermon, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's one chapter. So when I read from Obadiah, I'm never going to say the chapter number because it's, it's always one chapter. And, and, and Obadiah starts with what we call a judgment oracle, a judgment speech, a judgment declaration against Edom. And Obadiah is kind of unique because none of the other minor prophets primarily prophesy against other nations. It's always against Israel or Judah, but Obadiah here is going after Edom. So let's read together, uh, beginning in verses 2 through, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 from Obadiah, reading from the NLT translation. It says this, the Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations, and you will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride. Because you live in a rock fortress and you make your home high in the mountains. Who can reach his way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down. Then Obadiah goes on to explain what this destruction is going to look like for Edom. First off, they will be left with nothing. Nothing. The Edomites are obliterated, destroyed. They do not exist any longer. In fact, he, he says, hey, when a thief comes, a thief, at least a thief has a decency not to take everything. And when the grape harvesters come, at least they leave some grapes for the poor. But when I come to destroy you, Edom, there will be nothing left. In fact, one of the verses says, every treasure you have will be found and taken, every single one. And this would also happen to Edom. They would be betrayed by those who were closest to them. And Obadiah said, trusted friends will set traps for you. And the people you break bread with, the people you make covenants with, the people you make deals with, the people who are your family, they're going to turn on you. And so basically what happened to, what Edom did to Judah was going to happen to them and worse. Now what does Edom have to do with you and I? And when we get to verse 15 in the middle of this uh, book, commentators say this is the hinge verse of the entire book. I want to read it to you. Verse 15 of Obadiah chapter 1, it says, The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. So what commentators notice here is that the prophet is shifting from just focusing on Edom. Now God is saying, this is a word for everyone who doesn't fear me. This is a word, this is a word for everyone who is like Edom. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. And this is just God keeping his covenant that those who curse his people will be cursed. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. So what does this mean this morning? This is not just about Edom. You know what Edom is for us this morning? What do we have here? We have a case study in pride. We have a case study in pride. Edom's pride is just an example of the human condition. And you know in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, when, when, they, when the scribes would write out uh, the Hebrew language, they would only write out the consonants. They would not write out the vowels. And one of the things that the scholars point out is that Edom and Adam, or Adam, Adam, right, the first human, but the word Adam in the Hebrew actually also means human, that Edom and Adam, if you pull the vowels out of those two words, what do they look like? The exact same. And it's a word play here in Obadiah. 
that yes, Edom was a real nation who did real things, who suffered real consequences, but this book is even bigger than just about Edom. It's about humankind. It's about all of us and what happens when we have pride in our lives. And so this morning, we're gonna learn two things from the book of Obadiah. We're gonna learn how pride destroys us, and secondly, we're gonna learn how the gospel destroys pride, okay? How pride, how pride destroys us and how the gospel destroys pride. A couple of things we learn about pride in this book. Number one, pride is a liar. Pride is a liar. Let me read to you from verses three and four, but we just read it. You have been deceived by your own pride. You have been deceived by your own pride. Pride has the power to keep you from seeing yourself rightly. Pride has the power to blind you and prevent you from seeing your situation correctly. I remember some of you have heard this story before. In 2004, I led a team to Belfast, Northern Ireland. And while we were over there for about 10 to 12 days, we were serving in a community and we built a soccer field for them because they had a big field, but they didn't have any goals. And we built it for them. And the, the last day we were there, we were like, let's play a soccer game. Uh, of course, they call it football, but we call it soccer. Let's, let's play a soccer game with them. Now, I know, I, I know this morning standing before you, I look super athletic. Like I probably, you know, like I'm probably like an American Ninja Warrior or something, but I'm not that athletic. And, but, but after a week of playing soccer with the kids, I began to begin to think I was better at soccer than I actually was. And I won't tell the whole story, but there, became a, there was a moment in the game where I thought in my pride, in my blindness, in my stupidity, that I could execute what is the most, probably the most difficult move to execute in all of soccer. It's, it's called a bicycle kick. And if you know what a bicycle kick is, it requires you to be able to, first off, get yourself off the ground, which was my first challenge, but throw yourself off the ground, swing your foot over your head, and hit the ball in the opposite direction that you were facing. And I envisioned in that moment, like, how hard can this be? I just, all I gotta do is throw myself back and throw my leg up, and it will... I, first off, I almost knocked myself out. <laughs> the ball landed on my chest. No part of the rest of my body actually touched the ball. And the most shameful thing about the whole attempt was that nobody who was watching actually realized what I was trying to do. So it wasn't like they said, oh, that wasn't a very good bicycle kick. They literally came up and be like, what happened to you, bro? Like, did you have a stroke? Like, what in the world just went on? It was a bad moment. But pride, right? Pride can do that. Pride lies to us. Pride says you're better at something than you actually are. Pride says that you are more important really, in a, in a situation than you might be. And social psychologists, they've, they've coined a, a phrase called illus illusory superiority, which means when they survey people and ask them how good at you or something, consistently, by the way, especially Americans, think they're better at it than they are. And for example, they did a survey back, I think it was in, let me see, 1981, and they asked people about their driving skills. How many of you are probably the, in the better half of drivers out there? You know that Americans, 93% of Americans said they're in the top 50% of driving. You don't have to be a math major to know. No work. It does not work. That does not work. 93% think they're in the top 50%. And if you're laughing at them, if we did the poll this morning, it would probably be about the same. If I were to ask you in the room, how many of you think you're the best half of drivers? Most of your hands would definitely go up. Pride has this ability to make us think things believe things. And by the way, one of the evidences that you need to hear this morning's message is that you're sure you don't, is that you think, oh, a pride's not a big deal for me. Here's another evidence that you need this morning's message. Prideful people really bother you. It takes pride to be bothered by prideful people. And so let's lean in because pride will prevent us from even hearing this morning what we need to hear. Pride's a liar. By the way, one of the lies that pride tells us is that we're in control. Edom, lay, Edom was in a rugged mountainous terrain between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Akba. 
and they lived in the mountain peaks. You, you heard it in the text. And their mountains would rise as high as 5,700 feet above sea level. There were sharp crags and caves and there were clefts. It was a perfect place to live and hide and a perfect place to defend, right? If you're battling, you always want the high ground. And not only did they have the high ground, but it was their high ground. They had home court advantage and they knew where everything was and they thought that they were invincible. They thought, how can any army get up here and defeat us? They can't even reach us. And if they can reach us, we have all the advantages of knowing this territory. What they didn't realize is that their strength, the heights at which they live, became their weakness because God said, I'll bring you crashing down, even if you make your nest amongst the stars, right? They say the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Well, the higher you are, the further you fall. What they thought was a strength was a weakness. Pride fills you with arrogance of thinking that you can control things, that you're in control of anything. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have gone through a season of life where you've been rudely awakened to how little control you actually have. How little control. Someone that you love gets sick. You lose a job. A relationship falls apart. And all of a sudden, you realize how fragile life is and how little control you actually have over not just other people but yourself sometimes and circumstances. You begin to realize how not in control you are. And I just want to say, wrapped up in that pain, because those usually are painful seasons, wrapped up in that pain is a nugget, and the nugget is this. It's a gift, it's a gift that's reminding your heart you're not in control. Don't believe your own press. Don't buy into the pride, the lies of pride. You know, these Edomites, they say out of their own mouths, who can ever reach us up here? The arrogance of them. And this is one of the things that you have to know about pride. First, pride lies to you, and then pride lies through you. First, pride lies to you. It begins to say things to you fill your head up with things about who you are and how important you are and how other people should respect you and notice you and how great you are. And then eventually you'll start saying the very things that pride has been saying to you because pride will lie to you and then ultimately pride will lie through you. Another lie that pride tells us is that you are deserving. You deserve better. Pride keeps you from knowing the difference between what is a gift and what is a wage, what you've earned and what's been freely given to you. And pride also has a way of causing you to overestimate what you've contributed to your own success. A lot of times we like to talk about the idea of a self-made man or a self-made woman. Many of you have worked hard, I understand, to get where you are. Many of you have gone to many years of school. Some of you, like me, are still paying for your years in school. Many of you have studied hard, worked hard, done internships. You've taken jobs that were miserable just so you could get to the job that you're in. I get that right now. But what have you actually contributed to your success when you think of the larger perspective of things? So let me ask you this question. What did you contribute to when you were born in history? What did you contribute to where you were born? In America, many of you, as opposed to maybe somewhere else. Many of you work jobs right now that literally wouldn't have existed if you were born at a different time in history. Many of you have skills right now that would be useless 100 years ago. Many of you were born in places where, you know, you were born in a place where you had advantages. You didn't, you didn't choose the family you were born into. You didn't choose your mental and physical capabilities and capacity, did you? I mean, now that I have, we have a little, our littlest one, for those of you who don't know our family, our littlest one uh, has special needs. She has cerebral palsy, and so she's very limited in what she can do, and three of her um, appendages don't work very well, one of her arms and two of her legs. And, and now when I look at other children running around, I realize, like, we take that for granted now, don't we? When we see kids who are running around and who can use both of their hands, but they didn't choose to have that ability. We don't deserve the things that everyone else has. 
uh, you didn't choose the natural gifts that you were gifted with. Everything, from, everything is a gift from God. We're not self-made men. We're not self-made women. We are grateful recipients of the grace of God, and pride will keep you from seeing it that way. Pride will make it all about you, and pride will think you deserve things. And by the way, when you suffer, if your heart is filled with pride, you will not suffer well because you will be convinced that you deserve better. And you'll look at other people who aren't living as quote-unquote well as you, and they're doing fine, and you'll get so angry because you'll think you deserve better. You will not suffer well if you have pride in your heart, but you also will not succeed well when you have pride in your heart because you won't be grateful to anyone other than yourself. I mean, you might have enough social etiquette to say you're grateful, but in the deepest places of your heart, you're really just kind of happy with what the things are that you have done. So pride lies to us. It blinds us from reality and truth. Here's the thing. Pride is a liar that then makes you into a liar. That's how pride destroys us. Secondly, not only is pride a liar, pride is a hater. Let me read to you verses 10, 11, and 12. It says this. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, God is now recounting the things that Edom did to Judah as they were dragged off into Babylonian captivity. You will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. God's saying, you're not their enemies. You're their relatives, and you acted like one of their enemies. Verse 12, you should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. What we learn here is that pride is a hater. Pride causes us to hate others, and it builds hate in our hearts. One of the things that we see about pride here is that pride holds grudges. Why did Edom gloat when those things happened to Judah, when Judah was dragged off to Babylon? Why did they gloat? Why did they celebrate? Why did they speak arrogantly? Why did they pile on? Because they were holding grudges from things that had happened in the past. And they were saying, well, finally, Judah is getting what they deserve. And here's one of the things about pride is that pride will keep you right in the center of everything that happens in your life. Everything in your world will orbit around you, and you'll be the sun in your own universe. Every single situation in your life will be filtered first and foremost through the lens of how does this affect me? I was thinking how guilty I am of that sometimes in traffic. You know, you're driving down those dreaded highways in Pennsylvania trying to get somewhere, and it comes to a complete stop. And now I can see on my GPS there was a car accident up in front of me. You know what my first thought is, if I'm honest? The nerve of those people. The nerve of those people to get in an accident. Don't they realize who I am and where I got to go? Don't they realize I have three children under the age of 11 in the back seat, and there's a t ticking time bomb back there? Like, if we don't get where we need to go, things are going to Don't they realize? Instead of me stopping and thinking, man, I hope they're okay. I hope it's not a bad accident. I hope that the ambulance is there to take care, for them, care of them. Instead of thinking about how bad their day is now, am I the only one who does this? I immediately think about how bad they made my day by their inconvenience of getting into an accident, Right? But we're like that. Pride does that too. Is it causes us to filter every single thing that happens in our world through the lens of, how does this affect me? My friend's moving away. Oh, how's this gonna affect me, right? So and so, whatever it is. Pride replays past injuries and insults. If you find yourself constantly living in the past and rethinking through things that people have said to you and how they have hurt you and injured you in the past, it's pride. It's pride that does that. Pride is why you toss and turn at night, replaying moments in your day that didn't go your way, conversations you wish you could have a second shot at. Pride is why we feel slighted and offended. If, if you're, it, it takes pride to feel slighted and offended. If you're not, prou if you're not pride, proudful, 
then you won't feel that way. Pride is why you celebrate the struggles and sins of other people. And pride is why we can't forgive. And ultimately, here's what pride says. When somebody sins against us or when somebody does something we don't like, pride says, God, hold that against them. They knew exactly what they did. As opposed to Jesus on the cross dying, looking at the very people who crucified him. And what did he say? He didn't say hold it against them. They knew exactly what they did. He said what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Where does that come from? That's humility. It takes supernatural humility when somebody sins against you to say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We don't do that naturally. We assume everybody who hurts us knew exactly what they were doing. And we assign all sorts of motivations to people's actions, which is very uncharitable. But we do it, and we do it because of pride. Pride thinks, uh, so pride holds grudges. Pride also thinks that different than always means better than. Different than always means better than. Pride will use everything and anything to draw lines between me and quote unquote those people. Those people out there. Anything in an effort to feel superior. And we need to feel superior because we are insecure on our own and we don't know if we're good enough and so we draw lines and we put all those people on that side of the line and we put people like me on this side of the line and now we're better than those people. We're not just different than them, we're better than them. Can I give you some examples? I'll start with some, some, some lighthearted ones and then we'll get a little more serious. It's stuff like this. When you say something like this, I'm the type of person who, fill in the blank. Let me give you some examples. Some of these I've said before, so I'm confessing this morning. I'm the type of person who uses my turn signal in traffic. And those people that don't, I'm not different than them, I'm better than them. Now that is a legal issue, so we could debate that one, but you, please use your turn signals. But I'm the type of person who keeps my lawn nicely mowed, but those people don't. I'm the type of person who tips generously. I'm the type of person who doesn't yell at my kids in public. I'm the type of person that values education. I'm the type of person that's always on time. And all those people that aren't, I'm better than them. I'm the type of person who doesn't use social media. And all of you who are posting updates right now, I'm better than you. I I I'm the type of person who speaks my mind. Or I'm the type of person who never speaks my mind and always keeps the peace. See, it's both sides of the same line. I'm the type of person who cares about this specific issue or votes this specific way. I'm the type of person who goes to church. I'm the type of person who goes to this type of church. I'm the type of person who doesn't do the behavior that other Christians do. I'm the type of person who serves even when other people won't serve. And all the focus is me, me, me. And here's the real sick thing about pride. Pride has the power to turn even your best behavior into sin. Pride has the power to turn even your religious activities into sin when it's about you being better than people who aren't like you. That's what pride does. One of the questions that has to stick with us this morning is this. Are you bothered by the sin you see in other people more than you're broken by the sin that God sees in you? Are you bothered more by the sin you see in other people's lives than you are broken by the sin that you know God still sees in you? Pride is a hater that makes you a hater. And the last thing we learn about pride, so pride's a liar, Pride's a hater. Thirdly, pride is a taker. Verses 13 and 14, Obadiah says to the Edomites, you should not have plundered. I want you to notice every verb in these four verses. They're all really taking verbs. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You shouldn't have piled on. They were suffering. And then you ran in and you made it worse. 
You should not have gloated over their destruction, taking away their very dignity when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity, profiting from somebody else's suffering. Verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. And you should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in a terrible time of trouble. Pride is a taker. Pride takes what doesn't belong to itself. Pride will make you into a taker who takes things that you don't need, you don't deserve, they aren't yours to begin with. And by the way, there's a progression of pride. And the progression of pride is this. I need this, I deserve this, and then lastly, I am this. I need this, I deserve this, I am this. Let me talk about that real quick. I need this. Pride has an appetite, and it's insatiable. It's never fed. It always has to have more. It's never, oh, I got enough. It's always, I need to have more. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he wrote these words. This is very helpful. He said, pride, listen, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. I'll read that again. Pride takes no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And he goes on to say this, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. That's what pride does to us. We need it, why do we need it? Because we always need more, because we always need more than the person next to us. So I need it. Second thing is, I deserve this. I'm the center of the universe. Pride takes what isn't yours because pride makes you believe that everything is yours, or at least it should be. Recently, I was listening to a podcast by NPR, This American Life, and in one of their episodes, they, it was called It's All About Me. And uh, maybe that's what it was called, but it was about a guy named Zach McDermott. He's a 26-year-old Brooklyn public defender, and it was a fascinating story. He woke up one morning and he was convinced that he was being filmed. Like, how many of you remember seeing the movie Truman Show with Jim Carrey, whose whole life was being filmed? This, this public defender in Brooklyn, Jack McDermott, he's written a book about it, he woke up one morning convinced that basically that was happening to him. His whole life was being filmed. Every passerby, every person he interacted with was an actor who was there just because he was the star. Every car would magically stop for him. Everything he saw was a cue from a producer to help inspire the performance of a lifetime. And after a manic spree running around Manhattan thinking that he was on camera, acting out a scene, Zach, who was diagnosed as bipolar and his psychosis is more than that, but he was arrested on a subway platform and admitted to Bellevue Hospital, and he's, he's made a lot of strides since this, since this happened. And the point of this story is not to point out his psychosis or his mental illness as severe as it was, but the point is, is that pride actually does this to us. It makes us the star in our own movie. And everyone around us, we think, the cameras are on us, and we're always on stage, and everybody exists for us. The story's been written for us, and everyone around us is, should adapt to us. This is what pride does to us. It shifts us from saying, I need this to I deserve this, to lastly, I am this. And here's the real danger. Pride becomes an identity issue because you have to have whatever makes you who you are. So whatever you're great at, you'll do anything to have. Think for a minute. And this is not a bad question to reflect on. What is the thing about yourself that you're most proud about? What are you most proud about? Like, when you first meet somebody, what is it that you hope that, you'll, that they'll learn about you quickly? 
Maybe it's your level of education. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the things you've overcome. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's the whatever it is. Those aren't bad things, are they? But when that becomes a thing that you want most, when that becomes your identity, when you become that thing, then that thing has power over you, and you'll do anything to have it, and you'll do anything to not lose it. So this is what pride does. Pride is a taker. So let's recap before we finish this morning. Pride is a liar that makes you a liar, right? Pride is a hater that will make you a hater. Pride is a taker that will make you a taker. And this is how pride destroys us. Now, how does the gospel destroy pride? Let's end with some good news. At this point, maybe you're thinking, well, I guess the solution is just to like, not, be so, not feel so good about myself. Right, Pastor Dave? Like, I should just notice more things about myself I don't like and then not feel, think, think less of myself, think that I'm less. And, and that is not the cure, that is not at all, because actually self-pity is an inverted form of pride, because self-pity is still self-focus and self-obsession about yourself. It's just in a negative way. So if it's not think less of yourself, what is it? It's think of yourself less. So it's not, the solution is not think less of yourself, that you're lesser, but the solution is you, we need to learn by God's grace to think of ourselves less to consider others first, to think of ourselves second and not first. Well, how do we do that? Not easy, is it? The book of Obadiah ends with these two verses. I want to read them to you. It's good news. In verse 20 and 21, it says this. The exiles of Israel will return to their land. This is a promise to the Jewish people. God's going to bring you back. You're going to have your land again going to return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. They actually, if you understand geography, this is an expansion of their land. They're getting things back that they didn't have when they went into exile. Verse 21, this is a key verse. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and rule over the mountains of Edom. And the Lord himself will be king. Obadiah, by the Spirit, is speaking not just of the near future, but the distant future. Someday we'll see God as king, ruling over all things. And someday all those who trust him and have been rescued by him will be brought to this mount. And Obadiah, one of the things we learn about God is that God is God of the, he's God of the mountains. He's God of the mountains. And there's two mountains in Obadiah, and I want to close by talking to you about these mountains. And the first mountain is the mountain of Edom. This is where the wicked dwell. And this is where God punishes the wicked. And Obadiah, one of the key things he's teaching us in this book is this, that the wicked will not get away with their sins. Just like the Edomites will be punished for what they did to Judah, all those who sin against God someday will be held accountable and responsible for the things that they've done. The wicked, although it may seem in this lifetime like they get away with their sins, they will not get away with their sins. And as we continue through scripture, what we learn is this. You and I, you know what we deserve? We deserve to encounter God on the mountain of Edom. Remember, Edom, Adam, the mountain of humankind, where we all deserve, because we all have pride in our hearts. Every single one of us has prides in our, we all like Adam, remember Adam's sin? Pride, Eve's sin, they wanted to be their own boss, they wanted to have their own way, it was in their heart, we all have pride. And even Judah, of course, had this pride in their heart. Judah didn't go into exile because of Edom. Judah didn't go into exile even because of Babylon. Judah went into exile because of Judah. 
because of the sin in their hearts, because they were not keeping the covenant. And so God sends them into exile so that he can restore them and return them back. So we have the mountain of Edom, but then we get to verse 21, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're introduced to a second mountain. It's the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem. This is where God welcomes the rescued, the captives who have been brought home. Now, this meant something very specific at this time in history, but I want us to ask this broader question. How do you and I get from the mountain of Edom to the mountain of Zion? Let me rephrase it. How do you and I get from judgment to rescue? How do we get from wrath to welcome? Well, there's a third mountain. In verse 16, it says this. Just as you swallowed up my people on the holy mountain. Other translations say, just as the people of Judah drank the cup, so you and the surrounding nations, Edom, you and all who sin against me, will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. God's saying, I have a cup of wrath. And yes, Judah and Israel, they've had to drink from it. That's why they're in exile. But Edom, you're going to swallow this punishment. Yes, all you nations, now it's extending to all nations, will drink and stagger and disappear from history. What God is saying here is that Israel suffered my wrath and my punishment. They drank that cup. But Edom, you're going to suffer worse. It's going to be worse for you. Israel, they're my people. I'm going to restore them. Because of what you did, you're not just going to drink the cup of wrath. He said, you're going to disappear from the face of the earth. You're not even going to exist anymore. Now, here's the bad news for you and me. That's, that's for us, that we're in those nations. To drink the cup of God's wrath and to have no hope of rescue. What hope do we have? Then we get to the New Testament. We get to the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus starts talking about the cup. It's amazing. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is in the garden. He knows that he's headed to the cross to pay the price for the sins of humanity. And he prays this prayer. Let this cup pass for me. If there's any way, Father, if there's any other way, what's Jesus talking about? He knows the Old Testament. He knows Obadiah. He knows the wrath of God. He knows the cup of God's wrath, the holy God pouring out punishment on those who do not love him because of how holy and actually also how good he is. If you're that good, you're also that holy. If you're that righteous, you also have to be that holy. It's the nature of God. And Jesus knew that he was going to go to the cross and this cup that Obadiah talks about, Jesus was going to swallow it whole. He was going to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. And here's what happened on the third mountain. How do we get from Mount Edom to Mount Zion? It's Mount Calvary. And here's what happened on Mount Calvary. Jesus took the punishment of Mount Edom for us so that we could have the reward of Mount Zion. Jesus took the wrath of Mount Edom for you and me so that we could hear the welcome of Mount Zion, so that we could be brought in, grafted in to the family of God and invited to this mountain where forever we'll see our God is king and he reigns and he rules. And here's how it kills your pride because you couldn't do this for yourself. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many church services you've sat through. You could not drink this cup and not also disappear. You could not drink this cup and survive. But only if Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath for you do we have the hope of experiencing the welcome of the Father. And here's what the gospel says. You're so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, but you're so loved that he was glad to die for you. 
so sinful that he had to die for us, but so loved that he willingly chose to die for us. And if that truth finds its home in your heart, here's what it does. It kills pride. It kills pride because you didn't save yourself, but the one who saved you is faithful and he's true. And someday, as we come back together and God regathers his people, the people of Israel, to come together and they get the inheritance that is theirs. And Obadiah says, on that day, those who have been rescued will go up to the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They will rule over the mountains of Edom, far above the injustices and the sins of this world. And here's the great promise that Obadiah ends with. The Lord himself will be king. King of the mountain. God of the mountain. Let's pray together this morning.